Welcome to our Harvard Macy Institute podcast. Connecting our Harvard Macy community and discussing health professions, education topics and literature. So welcome to the next episode of the Harvard Macy Institute podcast. I'm Victoria Brazel and today we're going to be talking about social learning theory and continuing professional development and featuring a recent article from Medical Teacher. Uh, I'm joined today by Louise Allen and by Graham McMahon who are going to help me through this and I'll introduce them in a minute. Uh, but first of all, the name of the paper. So it is Applying a Social Theory of Learning to Explain the Possible Impacts of Continuing Professional Development in Medical Teacher this year with the lead author of Louise Allen. Uh, but also on that paper is some other Harvard Mason, Macy luminaries like Margaret Hay, Elizabeth Armstrong and Claire Palermo. And so to my first guest, who is indeed the first author of that paper, Louise Allen, how are you? Good, thanks, uh, Victoria. Nice to be here. Yes, well, by way of introduction, Louise is a dietitian by background. She um, is just finishing off her PhD looking at the impact of continuing professional development in health professions. And, uh, in fact, she's also a Fulbright Scholar and travel bans pending, might find herself in uh, Bethesda shortly to um, do a postdoctoral scholarship over there. So uh, it is lovely to have you along, Louise, and talking about your work. Uh, but we're also joined to add some weightiness of expertise to our group uh, by Graham McMahon, and he's there laughing at me as I say this, uh, who's an endocrinologist, an educator, and the CEO of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education in Chicago. But as you can tell when he opens his mouth, he uh, trained in Dublin, Ireland. He also trained at Harvard, and he was previously the Associate Dean for Continuing Education at Harvard Medical School. How are you, Graham? I am fantastic. It's lovely to see you, Victoria and Louise. All righty. Well, let's get right into it. Uh, we're going to talk about the paper, but we also want to talk about the topic itself. But Louise, just give us a little sense of why did you write this paper? Yeah, sure. So um, this paper formed part of my PhD research um, and I sort of came to be doing that research because um, I was interested in education uh, and because as a clinical dietitian, I'd done lots of different CPD some that was really engaging, really effective, uh, and some that wasn't really so. Um, and so the PhD sort of gave me an opportunity to start to explore this. Um, and as I began to sort of do my reading, um, do a scoping review in the area, that sort of thing, it became clear that a lot of the evaluations of impacts were looking at predetermined outcomes um, and really sort of ignoring that unintentional outcomes that often occur. Um, and there's a really nice quote from a paper that I like um, by Yardley and Dornan that compares doing that um, in a clinical setting. So it compares it to a clinical trial, looking at the intended effects of a new drug and not looking at the side effects of the drug. Um, and so that's something that's been really interesting to me. Uh, and I guess then wanting to explore those broader impacts of professional development more broadly and getting some deeper understanding of those. Yes, and I think I know what you mean. Uh, compared to the rigour that a lot of evaluation happens in undergraduate and postgraduate, you go to a conference for your CPD, they then send you a survey, say, did you have fun? Was the food good? And uh, the deeper impacts are, are rarely explored. Uh, Graham, this is probably no news to you. This is a little bit of a different space, isn't it? Yeah, it certainly is, is a very different space, but it's a very broad and diverse space. Um we're a, a national and international accrediting body. We oversee 
1,700 different organizations that put on nearly 200,000 different activities every year of every type and shape and form and specialty area. And the outcome variables that each of these organizations are required to demonstrate are vastly different. There's probably 190,000 of them. So um, some of them are high-level, patient-level um, outcome improvements. Some of them are smiley faces on some sort of a Likert scale. And uh, it's everything in between. Um, we set expectations for what those outcome assessments are, but I certainly appreciate and welcome uh, Louise's perspective, given the, uh, the ability to bring some of these outcome assessments together to look at the quality and impact of professional development activities on the individual clinician and in the individual clinician as part of a unit or a group or a team. Yeah, and I think that's obviously a very important thing. And I actually watched one of those Stanford X talks that you gave, where you really emphasised that it just isn't about the individual knowledge and skills of our health professionals. This is actually about the impact on institutions, on healthcare consumers, and much more broadly. And I guess that gives you quite a deal of responsibility as a, uh, as you say, regulatory body. Well, one of the challenges we face is that a lot of a lot of clinicians and organizations make assumptions about the capacity and ability of their healthcare professional workforce. And those are often at the risk of patient factor errors and making mistakes in healthcare. And many of those are preventable and very cheaply preventable. And it's in the best interest of the health professional and of the organization and for, of course, their patients that those errors are not made. So we have important responsibilities to try and interface with the community, um, increase their encouragement and their engagement, and you know make an impact and a difference. Excellent. Well, this sounds like you might be signing yourself up for another podcast, but uh, we shall return to the paper now. Uh, so, Louise, this particular paper, it's part of your PhD work, and it actually builds on a previous scoping review that you've done looking at what kind of impacts got evaluated. And you start very clearly by saying you're using uh, Wenger's social learning theory as your theoretical framework, and you talk about communities of practice. Uh, you, some of our listeners might remember we actually did an episode with um, Michelle Lynn and Teresa Chan about virtual communities of practice on a Harvard Macy Institute podcast. But can you just take us through some of the essences of this uh, concept and why you chose it? Yeah, sure. So Wenger's social learning theory is one of many social learning theories that exist. Um, and basically it posits that learning is not an individual process, um, but rather that it's a social process. And it's really situated in that cultural and historical context as well. Um, and so a lot of what we do um, is around acquiring knowledge and it's about looking at learning um, beyond that. And it's more about how you engage with others and how you utilise that knowledge and make it meaningful in your setting. Um, and so the communities of practice term often gets used to refer to a group of people, um, but really what it is, it's about talking about that social process of learning within that group of people over a period of time. Um, there's many different concepts that are part of the theory, which I won't go into too much detail of now um, for fear of uh, bogging everyone down. Um, but really it is about um, that concept of negotiating meaning. So that's making meaning with others, applying that knowledge. Um, it involves you participating with others, forming relationships, um, creating artefacts, um, dialogues, um, things that really um, are evidence of that community of practice, I guess, and that work that is happening. 
Um, yeah, so this is this is more than just saying you have a good social time when you go to a conference. This is actually uh, much more enmeshed, and I've seen some of the words talking about uh, joint enterprise and shared repertoire yeah. and mutual engagement uh, in communities of practice. And, and it's interesting, just uh, we're recording this on hashtag HMI Community Day, so it's actually rather uh, apt. And a shout-out to Christina Dezara here who helps engage that uh, community of practice on social social media. Uh, Graham, this sounds pretty logical. Any thoughts on the application of that theory to CPD? Well, it emphasizes the complex nature of human learning, that it doesn't, it's not a unidirectional flow of information coming from a speaker into somebody's brain. <clears throat> That's an outrageous kind of view of how learning occurs, of course. A lot of people have that view, that essentially you throw information at people and they learn. Uh, this course, it's a much more complex nature, and it's very relational. If you think about the nature of learning and how much in our field in particular trust is required, trust is implicitly a, a natural relationship component that has to be uh, earned before somebody will believe what you say and absorb it into their cognition and play with it. So uh, it's also the the nature of learning as we move away from more passive didactics to more participatory and active forms of learning require interaction between people. You think of, uh, you know, a problem that's given to um, a pair of neurosurgeons sitting at a, at a conference or in an online format, and they said, you know, what would you do in this circumstance? Just think of the interaction that occurs between those two neurosurgeons, that peer-to-peer -peer interaction where they norm with each other. If they neither of them know the answer or both of them know the answer, that's norming. The informing, if one knows the answer, doesn't know the answer, whatever it is, listening to each other and respecting each other, the interaction just between two people asked a very simple question of what would you do now creates an entirely different contextual learning environment that is incredibly important for the development of uh, human memory and meaning. Yeah, that's a lovely kind of illustration of, of the granular nature of what we're talking about and I give a shout out here to another long-term Harvard Macy community member Dan Pratt who I, I love his five perspectives on teaching and as you say this transmission perspective which many people are somewhat attached to uh, you know it's not without some merit but it's certainly not got the depth of what he might call this developmental perspective uh, on learning. So, uh, Louise, let's get into the methods and results. And it is a little dangerous to talk to a PhD scholar because they can nerd out on this stuff. Uh, but, look, I do want to give a little shout-out here. For those people who are just starting out or, indeed, at any point in their learning curve with qualitative research methods, one of the things I took away from this paper was your method, how to. It was so beautifully described, very carefully done, uh, lots of detail in there. So some people might be interested in reading this paper simply for the methods. Uh, but I'm going to sort of just make it a little simpler for our listeners. So you did 20 interviews with prior participants in the courses run by the Harvard Macy Institute in Boston and the Monash Institute for Health and Clinical Education in Melbourne. You did some semi-structured interviews. You did a thematic analysis. I know everyone's cringing if I just use two words to describe that, but that's where I'm going to leave it for now. And uh, and tell us, what did you actually find? Yeah, so... Um... After we sort of engaged with that data, um, there was really sort of five themes, I guess, that were standing out to us. Um, and the first was really around um, that growing and utilising the network of like-minded individuals. So the participants of the courses were really talking about how 
um, during the courses they made these connections and in a lot of cases they continued beyond the courses um, and it gave them that opportunity to talk to people with similar ideas, different ideas, to gain those different perspectives. Um, and as Graham was talking about before, that as a sort of a way of learning and informing and sort of um, deciding on how they wanted to um, approach things in the future from those learnings. Um, what was interesting that people talked about then, how they could leverage those connections after the courses as well. Um, so whether that be through formal mentoring relationships, um, through collaborations, through sharing of resources um, and those sorts of things, so that those relationships were actually quite important um, for the participants of these courses. Um, the second theme was more um, looking at self-belief and identity and how people felt that going to those courses and actually hearing the information that was being provided and talking to others, that they really gained a sense of affirmation that they were on the right track that they were doing things that sort of aligned with what they were um, seeing and hearing from other people and that it really helped them to have that confidence um, and to help sort of reduce those, that sense of inadequacy that I guess some people when they're working by themselves um, as an educator can feel um, and so that was really interesting um, and people talked how that then helped shape their career focus because it gave them sort of that encouragement and that empowerment to actually follow what they're interested in. Turns out educators have imposter syndrome too. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> <laughs> um, the third theme was really looking at applying the learnings to practice. So it was looking at the fact that that learning was a social practice, but then people could take those learnings and those new perspectives and those discussions back to their own settings um, and to start having those discussions with other peoples and start trying to implement those into their own settings. Um, and obviously that's influenced by other things, um, by time, by resources, by support, those sorts of things, um, but that it was um, something that they were able to do. And, again, they could lev leverage those connections to help with applying those new learnings to their practice. Um, the fourth theme was looking at achieve obtaining achievements and recognition, so really how the course affected career progression. Um, and there was many different aspects to this um, but what really stood out was that it helped people move along their career path quicker. They were getting that recognition from others, being seen as an educator, being seen as a leader, being seen as someone who was investing in themselves and wanting to improve. Um, and that, that really um, helped with applying for new jobs and roles and being provided with new opportunities. And then finally, the last theme, which draws on what Graham was saying earlier in terms of um, that learning isn't just about the individual I and mean, doing professional development isn't just about the individual and it's that once that individual returns to their own setting and they interact with other people, whether that be learners, patients, colleagues or whether it's their organisations or their institutions, um, that there can actually be indirect effects um, for those different components that they interact with and so that last theme was really exploring that. Yes, and uh, in some sort of post-publication member checking with me, having been to those courses, uh, these themes really resonate and I think many who have been to Harvard Macy courses would uh, recognise them. So I think they make sense and how lovely that you've kind of done a deep dive in, in pulling them out and getting all the examples that, that you have. Uh, Graham, I can't imagine any of this surprises you. Uh, what do you think? Well, some of it's somewhat surprising in that it, it helps me, or, or at least certainly reminded me the importance of um, the choice of the learner to be in that environment and their motivation. If you just think of the contrast of some clinicians find themselves in compliance education 
and how devastating that is for human development. <laughs> you know, how many, how many fire trainings do you really have to do? <laughs> but also, if, you, if your mindset is towards, like, meeting the credit requirements for some regulatory agency, I mean, the amount of learning that's going to happen in a circumstance like that, no matter how draconian the requirements are, is, is near zero, if not negative. So uh, the first thing is the importance of uh, engaging people together who want to be in this space together. That social construct is so essential for the creation of a learning environment. And I think what surprised me is the, the, the depth of the importance of that learning environment to create a learning space that people can grow in with each other. Because if you inject into that space people who are cynical, unwilling to be there, resent being there, that is so destructive to the learning environment for those who do. Um, and sometimes CPD can be a place where people are reluctantly, uh, not, by, not by choice. So that, that's a, an important learning. I think the other part that really resonated with me and elevated in terms of like a, how surprised I was, how important it was, was this notion of professional identity in a group being nurtured by the group in a way that allowed the learning to occur. So that if you didn't have these elements of reinforcing your professional identity or creating this tribe, then you may not have achieved the same sort of learning outcome or the confidence to deploy into practice the skills that were being developed. I think that's an important observation, Louise, that that ability to nurture a group of people to form a sense of identity around a common purpose really elevates the likelihood they will actually transform what they're learning into practice. Mm. So these are important reflections, I think, Graham, and I want to take two that you've mentioned. The first is, as a regulatory body, are you ready to give those reflections some teeth? Are you ready to stop uh, accrediting things that don't achieve some of these more laudable aims? Well, the challenge is that it's very hard to determine in advance what doesn't work. Uh, because for some people, they need, for example, just a knowledge transfer to get updated on new asthma guidelines. And that may be a very passive unidirectional transfer of information from a, a video podcast or something. And it may not have high outcome level assessments. It may be relatively rudimentary in its educational sophistication. But it's still valuable to maybe a couple of learners who needed the asthma guidelines. It may be re- irrelevant for sophisticated professionals who know those already. So it's hard to say that there's no value in passive didactics, because for some people there are. But we are doing a variety of things to try and augment and elevate the number of activities that have higher level outcome assessments to them. And our accreditation standards speak to that. And we have incentives in our standards to drive organizations towards higher level outcome assessments that demonstrate that the CPD is connected not only to the mission of the organization, which is obviously straightforward to, to, to designate and represent, but more importantly, to outcomes that are related to not just uh, knowledge or, or even skills, but on uh, performance improvement in the institution or impact on the community. And there are definitely ways, as Louise well knows, to demonstrate those. And more and more of the activities that we accredit are, are doing exactly that. But it is, it, it's, it's an uphill battle because of the enormous variability in CPD and unfortunately the absence of any curriculum you know unlike UME and uh, graduate medical education where there are defined curricula and expectations you know what what a neurosurgeon who only does 
a certain type of brain tumor in a highly sophisticated, what they need to know and be current in, very hard to articulate because that person's practice is likely very different from the neurosurgeon practicing beside them. Mm. So I'm going to come back to this measurement thing because I know this is part of the next steps in Louise's research. But just before I do that, Graham, you're obviously talking about this from the United States perspective. Have you got much sense of what your uh, parallel bodies in uh, the UK, Europe, Canada, Australia, have they got similar, I'm sure they've got similar conundrums. Do they have similar answers? Uh, They certainly have similar conundrums. Um, the regulatory construction of CBD around the world is also quite variable, um, and um, and that that also has impacts on the quality of some of the CBD systems in different parts of the world, and the reliance that professionals can put in that CBD system. Having said that, um, everyone is struggling with higher level outcome assessments. Um, I think. One of the demonstrable changes that's been occurring more recently is a move, uh, and this will delight you, Louise, I think, uh, away from more quantitative outcomes and these uh, silly, even redundant multiple choice tests at the end of an activity, you know, to, you know, statements of intent or what did you learn, reflective statements, much more effective, as you well know, to even generating a key learning, a learning point for an individual participant but uh, also much more relevant and germane to the CBD professional and educator to understand what the take-home messages were for communities who are attending or engaging their activities. But even relatively silly, not silly, but relatively basic uh, changes to outcome assessments like that can have meaningful impacts to the ways in which people engage in their own professional development because it tries to force them to be more reflective about and intentional about how they engage in their own professional development and their own learning. Mm. Well, that's probably a lovely segue into your next steps, Louise, because Graham's illustrated there that it is very hard to measure. Not everyone can do the in-depth study that you did on every CPD activity, but you've started some work, I understand, on trying to bridge that gap. Yeah, so we've taken the results from the scoping review that uh, you mentioned earlier uh, and this study and use them to try and develop um, a survey which has statements that can capture some of those broader outcomes. So looking at whether relationships were formed, looking at whether um, people have been able to determine their strengths and weaknesses, those sorts of things. Um, and as Graham was mentioning, also incorporating a qualitative component. So giving people the opportunity to express what they've learned, what they haven't learned, um, just having that sort of um, additional space um, so that we're not falling into that trap of ignoring possible outcomes um, that might be occurring but that we're not thinking of. Yeah, very good. Uh, now, before we come up to think about the final comments about how what this means for our CPD programs, Louise, I did want to take a little just sidebar here and just do a brief reflection on your PhD process because I guess from the outside this looks beautiful and logical. You do your scoping review, you do this empiric work, you come up with an instrument. Um, I know some of our listeners might be contemplating PhD studies or supervisors of PhD candidates. Uh, is it as smooth as it looks? Uh, I don't think a PhD is ever as smooth as it looks, Um, but I was really cognizant of wanting to do something um, with my PhD that was informed by the research and the work that we were doing to have a final, whatever that may be. At the start, we hadn't really decided what we were going to develop in the end, Um, but really planning um, the research so that the scoping review could inform the qualitative study and then we could look at what was happening there and make a decision on, okay, what do we want to 
do with this now that's practical. Um, and I think that partly was led by the pragmatic approach that I took um, and the philosophy that I was using for that research. Um, and so it was nice to be able to tell that story and to have that flow, um, which I know isn't always the case in some PhDs, which bring different studies together. I was just going to add, oftentimes when I talk to researchers, they always um, whine about the difficulty in educational research about lack of numbers and lack of extended time in which to evaluate their subjects and their research. But here you have a really good demonstration that uh, relatively short courses, <clears throat> excuse me, relatively small numbers of interviewees, you can actually derive very meaningful and impactful um, learnings from those from those analyses, um, and that magnitude uh, does not necessarily reflect on quality. And I think that was intentional with the work. We chose participants who had expressed the impacts that they had experienced. And so it was about us wanting to not say, okay, every single person that goes to these courses is experiencing these impacts, but that actually these are the impacts that can happen when you have those really engaged individuals, when you have a good environment. Um, they're what's possible. They're not what's always going to happen. Um, but it was intentional mm. that we tried to do that. Yeah, very nice. All right. So as we sort of start to sum this up, can I ask you both to reflect on what this means? So can I have a little sense of what's your take home point here? What should that mean for us uh, running or attending programs and can I ask you to shape that a little bit in the sense of now how so much of this is going to be virtual? Can we actually achieve these lovely outcomes without being in the same physical place? And I might uh, start with you, Louise. Take that multi-pronged question any way you like. Sure. So I think what it means is especially in the current climate with the large shift to online learning that who knows how long that's going to be going on for is that we really need to be considering how we can foster that interaction and that connection through those online spaces. Um, so rather than it just being delivering content via slides that people click through, how can we connect people and how can they work together and share their perspectives and ideas? Um, and so I think as much as this research wasn't in that setting, I think we can apply those learnings around that social process of learning to the online space. Um, and it's a matter of how we do that, especially given the limited time that people have had to turn around things that once were face-to-face -to, -face to being online now uh, and really just thinking a bit more deeply about how we can do that. Yeah, absolutely. And I was very um, impressed with how the Harvard Macy Leaders course ran in June and uh, looking forward to the similar iteration in uh, October for the Educators course and really using things like you talk about of still having breakout groups, still having small project groups and recognising it doesn't have to just be a one-to-many experience of virtual uh, learning. Uh, Graham, what are your thoughts on this? I think I think there there are some silver linings from this transformed experience that we're all going through around COVID, and the silver linings are probably accustoming learners to a broader array of educational and learning approaches that they will feel more comfortable with. But it creates new demands on educators to be creative in the way in which they harness relational learning to create meaningful outcomes, um, because there's a temptation with technology to leverage the simplest form of it and, and resort back to transmission pedagogy. And that would be to the detriment of us all when, in fact, we all realize that learning together is much more powerful than learning by yourself. 
but I, I think that a key deliverable and or result from this for me is a communication to educator and planners that they should foster intentionally the relationships between their attendees as a goal for their uh, didactics or online educational programs of any sort. And that means sacrificing intentionally time for small groups to form and norm and storm all the ways in which we know teams get formed and created. And that can occur in, in seconds to minutes, but it's extremely important for this identity formation that Louise was referring to and talking about and building on, for the learning then to build on that, uh, to form a consensus and a trajectory for the group as, uh, together. That's much more likely to generate meaningful outcomes and learning that will transfer into practice. Mm, well, I think um, Louise calls for this in her paper, some urgent investigation into some of these virtual communities of practice uh, in learning. All right, well, we might uh, start to finish up there, but just to remind our listeners, we're talking about a paper titled Applying a Social Theory of Learning to Explain the Possible Impacts of Continuing Professional Development in Medical Teacher uh, by Louise Allen, who's here on the podcast with us, but also Mark Hay, Elizabeth Armstrong and Claire Palermo. And uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you both uh, very much for your time. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right. And for, again, those listening, uh, I will have the links to this paper and some of the other things that we've mentioned on the blog post accompanying this. And uh, we'll look forward to the next Harvard Macy Institute podcast. I'm Victoria Brazel and signing off. <laughs>